welcome to another episode of Getting Off the Hamster Wheel, how to find a career that brings you joy, fulfillment, and success. My name is Karen Weeks, and today we have Patrick Cleary joining us to share his story about how he has balanced a career in knowledge management with a side passion in the arts, and how he realized being able to focus on both in his life is the right way to feel fulfilled. So let's jump in and hear Patrick's story. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Getting Off the Hamster Wheel. Today, we are with Patrick Cleary. Patrick and I have actually known each other for several years now. We overlapped uh, at Monitor, which is a consulting firm many years ago. And so I'm really excited for him to share his journey, both how he's gotten into his current career path, but also his passion that he has on the side and how he's thought about that as part of his career. So welcome, Patrick. Hi, Karen. We're so excited to have you. So tell me a little bit about how you first kind of got into the career of knowledge management. Not everybody may even know what that is, to be honest. Yeah, especially nowadays. Knowledge management had a real heyday in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s. I think as computer systems were becoming more prevalent, there was a lot of things that needed human intervention. So you needed basically a librarian uh, to take care of your data, to take care of your um, how you tag content so people can find it. Uh, Google really hadn't been a thing yet, so we were still in the time of Yahoo. I remember um, when I started, Lotus Notes was where we kept all of our <laughs> materials, which is, uh, it sounds like ancient texts now. Um, the way I got into it, I was actually working as a graphic designer for Monitor, the mm -hmm. company that we both worked for. Uh, I was a supervisor in the overnight shift, so we worked from 5 p.m. to 2 a.m. Wow. Uh, and we got a lot of documents from the knowledge management department um, to uh, have a quick turnover. And the um, head of that department, I can't remember if she was CKO at that time or not, um, but she, she and I developed a real relationship because a lot of the graphic design that we were doing involved charts and data and organizing things on PowerPoint slides rather than say traditional uh, graphic design where you would create advertising copy or something. Mm -hmm. And she really appreciated the organizational approach I took to her documents and said, I think you would be great as a knowledge manager or as a knowledge editor, um, which was the, uh, the title that I had. I was, mm -hmm. It was a combined knowledge editor and um, a executive assistant, basically. Mm -hmm. So half my time was working towards uh, making her life easier. And the other half of the time was working with the other knowledge managers and knowledge writers and editors that were in that department. Um, and it was, it was the first and only knowledge management department that was very well staffed that I worked at. Um, <laughs> uh, Monitor at the time was a very uh, fast growing, well uh, funded consulting company in the same way as McKinsey or Bain, mm -hmm. a little bit smaller than that, but they had a lot of money to put into things like knowledge management. And I learned a lot of skills from that. Um, it's a, like I said, it's very much a corporate librarian type of job. Uh, you have to know how to organize materials into different categories. You have to know, uh, have to make some decisions about uh, where things fall. Um, I still remember my first argument with my first boss about this was <laughs> we were talking about uh, video games. I can't remember. It was one of the first popular video games that we were consulting on and she wanted to put it into the category of toys. Um, hmm. And I said, entertainment. And I lost that battle. Um, she said, I still remember this piece of advice was you, you probably right, but I'm still your boss. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it's that type of thing. And I, uh, after I 
uh, exited out of that company, I just continued on. It's been almost 20 years in the knowledge management field. I've worked for consulting firms, and then I uh, moved into the tech space. I worked for engineering departments and IT departments for the past 10, 12 years or so. That's so interesting. And so before we get into uh, some of the places where your passion lies and, and how that overlaps or doesn't overlap with your day-to-day job, how have you seen um, your role in your industry grow over time? Because like you said, you started you know, before Google or, or when Google wasn't doing those sort of things. How, have, how has it kept you excited in your career as it's evolved over the last 20 years? It- since monitor, since my my very first entry into knowledge management, I have always come in as the uh, the first and oftentimes the only knowledge manager mm. in a team. A lot of companies will either know about the field or will Google who can organize my content and come up with the title knowledge manager. <laughs> and there aren't a lot of us around anymore. It's it's really an industry that had a peak and then it has been slowly drifting into a different field entirely over the past 20 years. Like right when people were putting documentation and going paperless uh, online uh, into online repositories, it was a very necessary part of it. Um, I have friends who started with uh, Yahoo right out of college when we, uh, when we exited college and all of Yahoo was indexed by people. And it was sort of the same thing with, uh, with different industries, especially consulting and law. You had to be, you know, you would be a, a traditional librarian slash knowledge manager for law libraries and for consulting or archives, a knowledge manager, which is a more corporate position. Um, so after that, going into, I went into a small firm that dealt with family businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a very unique type of position because we had to deal not only with the business, but with the family. Mm. So a lot of the archiving I had to do had to do with family relationships. So we had a lot of family trees that we had to pay attention to because things like birth order or whether someone is a first cousin twice removed becomes very important in terms of ownership, especially Mm -hmm. for companies that have been around for hundreds of years. Some of these, these family businesses are, are really just many generations. So it's always a different expectation when you go into a new company, uh, going from consulting to engineering. I, ha- I, I know nothing about engineering. And if you talk to any of the developers that I've ever worked <laughs> with, they will tell you the same thing. Um, but knowing how differently you need to, uh, you need to organize things like APIs or, um, different uh, architectures for mm-hmm. your, your comp- uh, for your uh, software programs or um, regulations right now. Uh, working in DraftKings, gambling is something that is regulated extremely uh, highly. Depending on the state, they're completely different regulations. So, wow. um, and for different industries. So you have daily fantasy sports, which is uh, uh, like the traditional fantasy sports where you would build a team. Uh, that's pretty much legal in most states, uh, whereas sportsbook, which is gambling on a sport or mm-hmm. online casino games, there's only a few states and there's possibly 50 different regulations for 50 different states with 50 different types of uh, departments that run them. And so knowing all of that and being able to pull all of those regulations at your fingertips, that's an incredibly interesting problem yes. if 
that's the kind of problem that interests you. <laughs> um, it's it's something that bores the the actual teeth out of most people is is trying to organize content into different buckets and making sure that it's retrievable. And it's a it's a problem that people think that software can solve, but it's uh, so I would say that's where the uh, the challenge comes in is that people expect that you would go like you would go to Google, type in one search term mm. and immediately understand all of this, uh, the knowledge that's in your company. But that's not the way that it works. And a lot of the time advocating for human intervention in how to index content is what I do. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I love that point around, especially when people are so used to using a Google platform or whatever, they want everything to work the same way. And not only does it not, but it shouldn't probably work the same way. And so you being able to step in and really be the expert and understand the business like you do makes a huge difference for them to actually get what they're looking for. Yeah. And it's a generational thing, too, because um, I'm old enough that Google didn't exist. I mean, you know, home computers didn't exist when I first entered the workforce. And so when you ask somebody who has been in the workforce since Google was uh, everywhere is if you say, have you filtered your search or, you know, mm. what keywords are you using or how are you combining your, your search? That's just a foreign concept to people who are used to typing in one or two worms, words and having something anticipated by yes. a powerhouse like Google um, and looking at information that's across all of the internet, as opposed to just the information in your company. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you've used the words organized several times, uh, mm -hmm. problem solving puzzles, you're also very creative and creativity supports those a hundred percent. But um, share a little bit about sort of that side of your life and that passion and how you've either married the two or you've kept the two separate. Yeah. Um, so when I, just before I went into uh, the company that I started uh, doing knowledge management with, I was also in an improv comedy troupe. Uh, it was called Naked Brunch. We were Boston's only gay and lesbian comedy, uh, improv comedy troupe. And uh, just before I decided to go into sort of corporate life, we decided that we would try to make it professional. Mm. So we toured up and down the uh, Eastern seaboard of the United States, going to colleges and different clubs that would bring in entertainment. We had a residency in Provincetown one summer. We mm -hmm. took over for uh, a comic who went off to try to shoot a pilot uh, at a television network. And uh, we quickly learned that your passion for performing can be a real trap. Mm. Um, I also volunteered a lot where our paths have crossed also, but mm -hmm. just missing each other was North Shore Music Theater. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I volunteered there because my partner at the time was working in one of the, uh, one of the offices there. And um, I love to do theater. I love to participate in theater, but I'm not sure that theater professionally would suit me because mm -hmm. it takes all of the pressures of the things that you do day to day and it turns it into uh, your passion becomes your job. And for a lot of people, that's exactly where they need to be. Um, but for me, I like to keep them separate so that the pressure's taken off of it and that it's purely pleasure for me. So um, I like to, I still have, I've participated in theater for 20, 30 years now. Um, I have, uh, as a playwright, as a director, set designer, sometimes an actor. Um, I'm not a very good actor, but um, in community theater, if you're a man, you get cast in a lot of roles. Um, my two professional credits were for North Shore Music Theater because I fit into the costume of one of the dancers who had to be at a different part of the stage. So um, I was a horse in Man of La Mancha. Um, 
And uh, yeah, and uh, recently I've uh, taken up storytelling over the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've heard the the Moth or Risk, those uh, podcasts, radio shows, uh, mm-hmm. they have story slams where you can uh, just go up and tell a five minute story or a 10 minute story in front of an audience that's there just to hear stories. And it's, it's terrific. It's, it's really a great outlet for uh, the creativity that come that really you don't get to have when you're doing something that's so organizationally oriented. Rule number one, be nice to everyone you meet because you never know who else they know. You and I have overlapped people in our lives at different stages of our lives that we never would have been able to piece together. Um, Oh yeah. You know, if, you know, if you sort of looked at us on paper and so always be nice to people because you never know who else knows you. Yeah. And especially as you are, uh, 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 this comes into entertainment a lot of times, but as you are on your way up, if someone's on their way down, mm-hmm. you never know when that's going to going to reverse or you never know the number of times, especially uh, especially these days where we're in the middle of COVID-19, mm-hmm. the number of people who have been laid off that have reached out to people that they've worked with. I would never deny somebody a recommendation if I thought that they were a good worker, but you might have some hesitation if they were a real pain to work yeah. with. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. It's so true. Um, so going back to, I really like what you said around sometimes having your passion also be like your income or your job uh, changes that passion for you. So you had the opportunity to sort of try it out uh, with the improv group. Um, all these years later, have you ever been, tempted again? Or do you ever try to bring some of that life into your um, day-to-day or any sort of temptation to try again? So as a playwright, I, um, I participated in the New York Fringe Festival, which is where some plays have broken out into mm-hmm. professional plays. Uh, You're in Town uh, started mm-hmm. at the New York Fringe Festival. So I think that's their most prominent musical, but a lot of straightforward plays have gotten publishing deals, et cetera, from there. So that was in, I, my partner at the time had his play uh, produced in 2013. And then I had my play produced in 2015. Mm -hmm. And both of those are self-funded productions. So it costs, uh, I'll say for, for my production, it cost about 12 to $15,000 to bring it there. Um, So we had to, fundraise. We did it both through crowdfunding for both productions, Mm -hmm. Um, find directors, uh, deal with equity for actors, deal with the New York Fire Department for all of the fire regulations uh, to do with theater. Um, So all of that really gave me another uh, peek into professional theater because it was, was, we we dealt with equity actors, we dealt with uh, professional stage managers, and a, a lot of the the nuts and bolts of running a company that's has to do with uh, with a a creative outlet, right? Yeah. And that pretty much cemented for me the idea that I really like to be able to play in this space. Yeah. But the people that I met who were doing this professionally really did take a lot of risks, and the the there's no consistency to a lot of the work that they're doing. You know, if you're in a Broadway show, if that show closes, you might not be in another Broadway show ever. Yeah. Um, you know, or if you're in a, a, a union that happens to negotiate uh, a pay level in, in the arts that can't sustain you in a, mm-hmm. in, a uh, in a city like New York or Los Angeles, then you have to find other things to do. So there's a lot of professional people who they're, main job they would consider theater or movie making or writing 
Um, I have friends who are uh, novelists who have three or four books that have been published and they still have to work their day jobs. Mm. So um, it's a real conscious choice on my part to keep that part of my life uh, as something that I can I can do when I want to, but it doesn't have, come with the pressures of trying to keep a roof over my head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that I struggled with when I was in theater was the whole idea, where's my next job? When's my next job? What is it going to be? Um, and I personally, that was too uncomfortable for me. My husband has stayed in it and he loves it, but he went to the business side for a while and he just, it ruined like the whole artistic experience for him. And he wanted to focus on the art side, even if it meant he gave up control over what plays were being done or who was being hired. The business side of it was less attractive than having all the control. Yeah. And when I was at the Fringe Festival, I, I met uh, several um, people who were in relationships who would uh, transfer back and forth. So one would be working, say, retail or in a, in a traditional corporation while the other one did a show or a movie or worked in television for a couple of years and then they'd switch so that they would each get the chance to do both and it wasn't just a it wasn't just a one-off or a two-off there were several couples who were doing that and I think that that's really great um, I've heard that from writers as well that one of the easiest ways to allow yourself to write is to get yourself a partner who has a steady income yeah. <laughs> Someone's going to be able to pay the rent. Yep. Um, so especially if people are trying to think about, you know, they have a passion, they have a hobby, they have something they really enjoy. And yeah, their day job is fine, but it's not feeding that passion. Um, any advice that you would give them on how to think about, should they go for it and, you know, quit, quit their jobs and, and go for it? Or should they try to do it on the side, either volunteering or just, you know, through side gigs? Yeah, I, I think one, you should know exactly what you're getting into. So doing professional theater, it doesn't mean that you have to pick up, pick up stakes and move to New York to try to do it. Um, there are a tremendous number of professional regional theaters that you probably will end up in if you are doing theater. But um, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in art history. Um, and I worked in a number of galleries before I decided that I should really try to do something other than keep within the art history space because without a PhD in Massachusetts, you really can't get into say a museum. Um, I remember I went to one of the museum gift shops and they said, we only take people with master's degrees oh for gosh. cashiers. <laughs> um, so knowing what that space is about and knowing that I wasn't, um, that working in say a gallery would, uh, it, it was something that I thought that I would be able to do and maybe open up a gallery for myself. But I realized that I was not, uh, comfortable with the clientele of a gallery mm -hmm. that rich people, super rich people who could afford fine art were uh, sometimes difficult to deal with. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that I couldn't sell to them very well. So knowing what you're getting into is really important. I mm -hmm. think um, a lot of times uh, people have a, a very, uh, especially younger people have a very starry eyed idea that they can go to Los Angeles because they've got the best script that they've ever seen and that they will get a, a deal for a pilot or will be able to get into a writer's room. And it takes many, many years to get in. Yeah. And a lot of times it doesn't last very long. Um, to stay within your passion, I think definitely um, find opportunities to play at what you like to do, no matter what that is. And if, if you can do that enough that it satisfies that itch, I think that that's really important as well. Yeah. Um, Sometimes, and sometimes you have to do both. Sometimes you have to say, you know, I'll, 
Um, you know, I'll work at a corporate job for five years and I will live with five roommates and I'll eat nothing but, you know, bread and crackers for the, that time. And then I'll take a couple of years and go do what I want to do. And I think yeah. that's perfectly, uh, it's nowadays it's a lot less, it's a lot, lot more difficult to do than uh, it used to be, but I think it's still doable if you wanted to yeah. take a full chance. Yeah. And I think it's also, it's harder to do, but less taboo. I feel like, you know, as I'm looking at resumes, if I see someone with a gap and I ask them about it and they say, oh, I was trying this out, I was trying that out, I was doing this and it taught me this and this is why I'm back or this is why I've made the change or whatever, it feels like that is much more acceptable because you want someone who's gone through that journey and ended up in the place that they want to be and are ready to commit versus someone who's constantly kind of all over the map. Yeah, and it really does... Uh, you can really use those skills and feature those skills on your resume or when you're talking to people within a more traditional line of work. Uh, the storytelling, I definitely have been asked to mentor um, a lot of engineers who are not used to having to speak in front of crowds, not used to having to speak up in a meeting and just saying, you know, can you talk to them about how to build a story or build their case because they're super smart, but they just, their skill doesn't happen to lie in there. Or if you, or find something that aligns better with what you, uh, what you do for your hobby as well. So if yeah. you love art, marketing might be there, might be something that you're interested in. Or um, if you wanted to, you know, storytelling, there's always uh, presentation uh, work that's necessary for, for corporate life as well. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I've heard people suggest is if you are an engineer or an HR person or an accountant, something that is in a lot of different industries, try to at least do it in the industry that your hobby is in or your passion is in, because then you're at least still part of that world, even if your day job is not specifically the thing that you are trying to do on the weekends. Yeah, and sometimes you're in the right job, but in the wrong industry as well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things when I worked for that family business consulting group, a lot of family businesses, it's assumed that all of the people in the family will work for the business, but they send them out to work somewhere else first because you get that perspective. And I think that that's helpful as well. If you're feeling burnt out, it could just be that you're in the wrong company. You might have the wrong boss, but you might be in the wrong industry too. You know, if you can't feel good about the industry that you are supporting, then there's plenty of places, you know, like you said, if you're an accountant, you can be an accountant for, um, you know, a very evil company that spills <laughs> chemicals into the world, or you could do it for a nonprofit. And yeah. it can be more rewarding to do work that you're good at, but doesn't necessarily inspire you for an industry that inspires you. I love it. Well, uh, one thing I was really excited to have Patrick on the show because I think it's really important that people understand all the different ways that you can have find your passion and you don't have to feel like you're on the hamster wheel, even if you're quote unquote, just working a nine to five job. There's a lot of ways to fill your soul through either the work that you do and getting with the right company or the right industry or doing it on the side and recognizing the real value that will give you in your life. And especially if you're someone who has a lot of flexibility in their schedule, you can do things in the evenings, on the weekends, you know, there's lots of opportunities to, to fill in those gaps of time, uh, even when you're working full time. Yeah. And also, don't be afraid to let your company know what, what it is you do in your, in your free time as well. Because if you're, uh, I do find that a lot of people in theater uh, will uh, have scheduling difficulties because they haven't told their boss that they're doing theater mm -hmm. as if it's something to be ashamed of, or they think that they might get in trouble for sort of moonlighting at a job that doesn't pay them anything. And 
I think that the, I've gotten more opportunities at work to do more interesting things because I've let them know that I've done theater or storytelling or something. That is a great point, yeah, especially as you mentioned, doing storytelling with engineers. That's an amazing skill to be able to share that is not technically part of your job description, probably. Exactly. Thank you again to Patrick for sharing his story of how he avoids getting stuck on the hamster wheel by including the arts in his life. I hope today's conversation helped inspire you. And if it did, please consider subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with others, and leaving a rating and review on the platform of your choice. And don't forget to check out my teachable course and coaching package. Listeners get a 20% discount with the code HAMSTER. Until next time, remember there is always a way to get off the hamster wheel.